The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is serious, 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 serious fun. Hello and welcome to this, the third episode and our final episode of Serious Fun recorded live at the 2023 Brown County Library PopCon and this one is special as they have all been special but I'm inviting some new guests who are some of my colleagues and my co-directors from the Center for Games and Interactive Media here on the campus of UW Green Bay, Dr. Julie Case and Dr. Chris Williams to talk about some of the games that we thought were incredibly important, not only to ourselves, but to the industry and the medium of games in general. We're calling it The Game Changers. It's right now on Serious Fun. Hi, everybody. Uh, so uh, the, the crowd's a bit smaller uh, <laughs> after compared to our last show, but I'm very glad you're all here. Uh, welcome to our third and final podcast recording for Serious Fun from the 2023 Brown County Library PopCon. I am your host, Brian Carr, and we are all of us together about to make up for our misspent youth. For those of you in the audience familiar with Serious Fun, I'm so sorry. Um, if you are not familiar with Serious Fun, uh, disregard what I just said. Uh, it is an exploration of pop culture from those who create, study, and consume it. We're trying to seek out the craft, meaning, and purpose of our favorite things. And today, one of those favorite things is, of course, video games. Pause for applause. Uh, <laughs> Not just any video games, folks, those video games that inspired us, challenged us, infuriated us, comforted us, and above all, changed us and the industry itself. Today, we're going to assemble an official serious fun list of the games you just got to play. We'll talk about why we're calling it The Game Changers. The Game Changers. Joining me on this quest are my erstwhile colleagues and co-directors at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay Center for Games and Interactive Media. Please welcome Dr. Julie Case and Dr. Chris Williams to Serious Fun, their first time on the show, so maybe, you know, don't be get on the microphone there. Okay. Um, before we get started, I want to introduce you two and uh, talk about some of the cool stuff that is going on. Uh, you're both English professors. Just real quick, tell us your stories. Tell us about yourselves. You go ahead. Uh, my name's Chris Williams. Uh, I've been teaching at UWGB for, it's been my fifth fall. Um, I teach primarily game writing and poetry. So, yeah, I kind of fell into the game thing just by being an avid gamer uh, and just started thinking about how games are constructed, all of that, and my dissertation ended up being half a game. So it kind of fell into it that way. Is that enough support? I think that's, if, if you're good, I'm good. Okay, fantastic. All right. <laughs> and I'm Julie Case. I was hired uh, at UWGB at the same time as Chris Williams. We were hired to start the game writing track in the Writing and Applied Arts program. We're Really excited about doing that. I write fiction and creative nonfiction, but I've also loved games ever since I was a kid. And I, one of the things that probably many of you have heard from me a lot is I feel like games should not just be things that fancy corporations get to make and create, but that all of us can do things in games that you can't do in other media. And the more you can help people learn to make games and create games, the better off we are as a society because you get all those cool games that are out there. So thanks you all so much for coming. It's good to see you all. 
Yes, very good to see all of you. Thank you for being here. Um, and uh, I want to talk just real quick about what the Center for Games and Interactive Media. What is it, what kind of work does it do? Yep, so we started, we founded the Center for Games and Interactive Media as a place to kind of collect a lot of discussions about games, both academically and from, a, you know, how about just having fun for games. We want to have resources for educators that would like to use games in their classrooms or for people that want to learn to make games on their own, even if they don't necessarily want to learn programming or complex coding. Um, and yeah, just to have a bunch of conversations, bring together a bunch of people. We're working on new streaming stuff, which maybe I'll let Chris talk about. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's, we have multifaceted missions for the Center for Games Interactive Media. Uh, part of which is come to events like this and talk about games with folks like you. Uh, some of this is also to have students, uh, interested folks, create their own streams. So we have a Twitter, uh, a Twitch, excuse me, uh, stream that we often stream from. Um, you can see our dedicated interns over there uh, trying to do some of the stuff with that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's thinking about all aspects of uh, careers, ideas, conversations surrounding games, including uh, communicating games. And I'll just do a quick plug for our social media. You can follow us on well, X. <laughs> we can call it Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We also have a Discord server that we would love for you to join. It's brand new, so you can tell us all the things that we could do better. <laughs> but please follow us and hang out with us. We would love that. So here's why I still want to call it Twitter. And you should absolutely go to Twitter and follow uh, see Jim, um, because tweets—that's what you called them. That is the brand name. That was what was worth all the money. Y you change like what are we calling it? X's? Like what? Do you, the <laughs> I think Zeets maybe. Wait, no, you don't. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you know I don't. And now we're taking away headlines on on the on the links. I, this has nothing to do with anything. It just annoys me. Um, you took a. Well, I'm not going to say a perfectly good website because it was terrible, but it was our terrible. And then you just ruined it. He ruined it anyway. Um, the room took a turn. Okay. Uh, how should we think about video games as something more than just entertainment? Right? We, we're going to talk a lot about like video games and why they're important, why they matter. But a lot of folks think of them like, oh, this is a thing that's fun. I like to play them. Why should we think about them as more than just something that's entertaining? That's the question? Okay. Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think because, well, for a lot of folks here, um, these games have formative events, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ones I picked, uh, which we'll get to in a second here, uh, fundamentally changed how I view what art and mediums can do. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like a cool game here, but it actually opened up my ideas and the way in which I think about poems, ways in which I think about text, all of it kind of comes from this it was Baldur's Gate. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but all of that is formative, right? So it's more than just like a pastime. It became like a career for me. And even outside game development, that's just for me. Yeah, I would say from my perspective as a storyteller, I think I came to games as a kid. And there's a lot of debate, and I know as some of you know, in, in the game studies world about whether games should tell stories or do tell stories or tell good stories or can. And so I'm very just going to come out right now and say that, yeah, they tell really good stories. And there are things you can do in games that you can't do in any other media. And that they, those things are not just successful, but they stick with you. They stay with you. They're memorable. I think they have a bodily mem memory that's really powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I think I feel like dismissing games as mere entertainment really avoids a lot of the really cool things that you can do with games. And I feel like we're only at the beginning of exploring all the stuff that we can do with digital storytelling. So 
let's talk about some of those cool things we can do. And so our purpose today is we're going to make a list uh, called the Game Changers. Uh, these are games that are not necessarily like the greatest games of all time, or even in some cases our favorite games of all time, but they are games that, well, they might be some of our favorite games, but they're really something that have also made important contributions to us personally or to the games industry, something that's crucial and irreplaceable. Now, I tasked uh, Doctors Case and Williams with uh, coming up with five games we're going to present and make a brief case for. We're going to put those on the list um, for the sake of time. We're not going to be ranking them, but you know, you can rank them however you want. Uh, so we're going to make our case for those games, and we're going to have like five slots on the list where all of you can help contribute and fill out that list. So you can come up with a game that you think should be on there, explain why, we'll hold a vote, um, it might be a very quick vote, um, but uh, we'll, by at the end of it we will have a space, uh, we will have a list, and if we have more entries than we do spaces, then we have some hard decisions to make. We can start cutting and dropping and things like that, or we can just add another square, I mean who cares? <laughs> like you know, we can add another row if we have to, it's fine. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started, and Dr. Case, you're up first. Uh, I was going alphabetically. Oh, um, okay. And so uh, we're going to start with your first game, uh, or we will if I have this thing turned on. King's Quest IV. Tell us about King's Quest IV and why it deserves to be on this list. Am I doing all five of mine in a row? Uh, we're going to go one by one. Okay, okay. So, King's Quest IV. I had a hard time, as I'm sure you would imagine. I Hopefully, you're all sitting out there in the audience thinking, what are my top five games? Or if I was going to make a list, what would they be? And I felt like for me, I know we were supposed to be all prof professorial and, you know, think about... You can do whatever you want. <laughs> in terms of, like, There's no rules at this point. The canon, or in terms of, like, these are doing really different things. But for me, there it was really hard to separate that. I'm curious for the other two of you. From, it, it was very yeah. easy for me to separate it because I just went with the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it there's this personal sense too, yeah. right? It's like the games that changed me as a person. And I don't know that they will change you necessarily, but I was thinking about them, right? So one of the first games I played as a kid was King's Quest IV by Sierra in 1988. Um, Perils of Rosella was the one that I picked. And, and they're all really great, but I liked Perils of Rosella particularly because it was one of the first games that I played that had a female protagonist. Um, and as someone who was, you know, identified as, as a female as a kid, that, that meant a lot to me. And it's a story about a princess whose father is really sick and she gets sent to this special world to try and find the special item. And as a kid, I was really scared of games, certain things, especially this one. The, the graphics are not great. And so I think it's funny, back in, the, back in the day, you could spend hours like just going up a staircase, right? Like trying to get to the second floor of the mansion while not falling through the holes in the staircase and dying. So it's like you walk a little bit, you save, you walk a little bit, you fall, you reload the game. <laughs> but I, that, as, a, as a kid, this was terrifying to me. So I played with my dad a lot. And the story, I think, too, really stood out to me, right? The sense of like having to rescue my dad and playing the game with my dad. It's one of the first games that I really connected to as a person. And so this one, to me, is a game changer. I love Roberta Williams, the game designer. I feel like... Um, she was a really important figure, again, one of the only women at that time working in games. Um, so this game, to me, is more of my personal choice, I think. Okay, let's Good talk luck. about your next game. If, oh. Anything you want to add, Chris, or...? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I would say the King's Quest games, all the Sierra Adventure games were kind of formative that mm -hmm. way, too, right? Whether it be Space Quest, King's Quest, um, Quest of Glory, you have a bunch of quests in them. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah. yeah, those are really important. I feel like we should have a conversation sometime about like what game really pulled us in as kids, like the first game that was like, yeah. this well, is my next game. year, you know, yeah. we'll come back. <laughs> we all right, let's talk about your next game on this list, and it is Final Fantasy VII. I got thoughts on this one, but I'm gonna let you lead. Yeah, I had a hard time picking which Final Fantasy game to pick, and I think for this one, 
Um, the reason I picked the Final Fantasy series and Final Fantasy VII in particular is thinking about storytelling and the ways that as a player you feel implicated in the story. So I won't, I don't want to, I mean, I don't know, this game is really old, so <laughs> it can spoil it a little bit. But there are some moments in this game, and one that really stood out to me is that at the beginning you're tasked with um, saving the city from this evil corporation. And sorry, spoiler, but you, you fail, right? In the beginning, this plate comes crashing down, it crashes down on the slums, a lot of the characters and places that you've connected to through the game are just destroyed. And I remember the first time I, when I played this game, I was just shocked by this, the sense that like I could fail. And Final Fantasy does this in a lot of their titles. This isn't something that's only specific to this game. And there's some other moments too where you lose important characters that you've played with and developed connections with. And I think for me, this was a game that really just highlighted the ways that in a story you can feel like it's your fault if things go badly and you can make people feel responsible for the story even though you can't play this game and not lose the things that you lose and destroy the things that you destroy. Yeah, and certainly there are a lot of people who wanted to try to find ways to do that and I think you're, you're really salient in that one of the biggest questions about this game or one of the biggest rumors is that well there's a character that dies in the game and we'll leave it at that. Um, and people are like, well, how can I bring this character back? And there's like these rumors and these things. And the whole point is that you can't, right? You're not supposed to. And there's a reason why you're not supposed to. And it, it is kind of, I think, for a lot of people, maybe one of those first brushes with like that idea that, oh, you have lost something, right? And especially because Final Fantasy VII was such a big kind of crossover hit compared to the previous games. Um, that was probably a, lot, a hard pill for people to swallow. Yeah, I think like this, obviously Final Fantasy existed before Final Fantasy VII, but this feels like a really touched on moment. Like, yeah. You get, because I remember when this came out at cons, you saw people with the, you know, the sword and cloud and all that. It feels like from this moment on, like Final Fantasy started to be codified as a, as a, as an entity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it was certainly the big breakthrough for Final yeah. Fantasy VII. Um, this was not your first Final Fantasy, I'm, I'm assuming, though. No. No. But it, yeah, it was the one that really stuck with me. And I think it was partly to the system, right? Like there, the graphics were better, the, the mm -hmm. control was vibrating. Like I, I think a lot about the body, the way that the body responds to storytelling in games, right? That you have, in Final Fantasy VIII, you have this gun blade, right? Mm -hmm. So you're like constantly trying to hit the button at the right time so that the blade will do the most damage. And that you kind of store that, right? Or if you're playing a level and you, you, you remember how the controller works, and that, there's something really powerful about that too, that you're engaging with stories through your body in a way that you kind of keep and that is interesting, and uh, I think it's also notable for being one of the first games that was really sold at a mainstream level on the strength of its story. Right? The ads were all about the cutscenes and the story and the scope of it, and uh, it's a really interesting project. And of course, they they are remaking it, and without go I, I won't spoil that one because that is a pretty new one. Let's just say that uh, there's a reason why I'm very careful not to spoil the remake and leave it at that, um, because this is an interesting conversation to have that uh, it's worth checking out because we can't talk much more about it than that, I think. Um, all right, your next game, and I want to just kind of preface this by saying, okay, no, we're not that one yet. Okay, so World of Warcraft. What about World of Warcraft? I wonder how you picked the order. I'm very curious. I, it was just literally what you gave me. <laughs> There's no magic order here. Okay. So World of Warcraft came out in 2004 by Blizzard. I've been playing it off and on for a really long time. I think I started playing in 2009. So this game is one, again, I think was really formative for me. So as a as an, um, massive, massive multiplayer online role-playing game, it is, I think, it wasn't necessarily the first one, it, I, you know, arguably maybe not the best one, but it is the biggest one, and I think that a lot of people have played it. You can walk, I, I love this game so much, I've played it for so long. I love the way you can walk into a room of people and just be like, oh, World of Warcraft, and there's always somebody that's played it. It's always the person you don't expect. You've played it with, like, women, you know, old people, like, everybody plays this game, and everyone has played it. 
My favorite thing about this game is not necessarily the story or the engagement, but the people that I've met. Um, I think a lot about empathy in games and the ways that games allow you to connect with other people, and particularly ways you connect in games that you might not be able to do in, in, the, in the real world. And I feel like when I think about my gaming friends through World of Warcraft, I am way more willing to accept just a bunch of weird stuff from them. You know, like on Facebook, I have hidden my uncle who was very upset about tearing down Confederate statues. I was like, man, I don't ever want to hear from that man again. Like, I've been to funerals with that man. I've played dominoes with that man. I was like, no, go away. I never want to talk to you. But in my gamer friends, I, you know, I feel like there's this willingness to kind of just listen and be curious. And that, to me, is a really powerful thing that a game can do, that you can develop connections with people you've never met that you maybe wouldn't recognize them on the street, but that you feel a strong connection with them, you, and then that, that connection lasts over years. I was just telling Chris, I have a friend that I made in like 2015, and she's coming to Denver. And I'm like, oh yeah, I could go see her. I haven't played with her in years, but I'm like, yeah, I want to go see what Gospaz is doing in Denver. Um, so yeah, I think this game, again, is a really personal and one for me. This game is an adult. I mean, that's the thing, too. We're talking about these games that have been around 2004, right? It's by oldest of people in this room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it's evolved, I mean, it's, it's evolved, it's grown. Um, can't buy a beer yet, but soon, right? <laughs> uh, and I think what makes this distinct, too, is that it's still happening. It's still a massive game, mm -hmm. right? That's kind of evolved and grown over time. And some people have grown up with it, right? Um, and I don't know how many more games you can really say that about. Like, obviously, we're talking about, like, Final Fantasy VII, these touchstones. But it's something that, like, changes and evolves with you is something remarkable about that. Yeah, and stays active right. and still updates with new stuff. I mean, we can certainly say, well, Mario Brothers 1, but yeah, Mario Brothers 1 is done. We've largely had that conversation. World of Warcraft is an ongoing one. All right, so let's go to another one that I think a lot of folks in this room probably have played. And uh, I'm gonna just apologize for the difference in the slide because Julie came up to me before this and said, hey, I wanna change one of my games. So Julie, why Pokemon Go? Yeah, I, I don't know how I forgot this one because how could you? But last night we were talking. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that has to be in my list. So Pokemon Go, I imagine most of you have played it. It's an augmented reality game. You wander around the world. You collect Pokemon. You you know get items. Now there's raid battling and villains and all kinds of things that you can do. This game for me, when it came out in 2016, it basically kind of changed the environment. I remember playing in our small town in Illinois in a park that was normally deserted was just packed with like hundreds and hundreds of people. And I love this game too because I feel like you can bring it up and people have stories. Like they remember playing with their kids, they remember playing with their friends. People lost weight playing this game. It was just a whole, a whole season. Um, and I think that when a lot of people talk about this game, there's a sense of like nostalgia and a sense of like comfort and a sense of like, yeah, this was a really cool time and I'm glad that I got to be a part of it. I love the way that it blurs the boundaries between the game world and the the physical world. So I remember for a time there was a gym really near my near my house and so you know I'd, every morning I wake up and see like which team had the gym and some days I'd leave my house and I'd just like turn to look and I couldn't see the gym because I didn't have my phone I was just like oh the gym's over there what color is it and so I feel like that that blurring between the game world and the real world again as a storyteller seems really powerful to me I love the way that it inspired conversations about spaces so a lot of times you would you know pair up with other people to to fight bosses and things like that or do raids and so there would be conversations in these channels on Facebook 
Facebook or on Discord where people would say things like, oh, you know, I get off work at 3 a.m., but I'm nervous as a woman walking around town. And then another person would say, oh, yeah, I'm a black guy and I like to play at 3 a.m., but I always get picked up by the cops. So, like, maybe we can play together. And then, so it was one, like, people connecting, but two, like, these really frank discussions about what it was like to be in a space, in, in a familiar space, and different demographics, like, explaining their experiences of those spaces and all those conversations that kind of came up front come up with that. So I feel like, one, there was a super emotional game. It appealed to a wide variety of people, but it had some really, really interesting conversations that came along with it. Yeah, you know, I think uh, along with this too, I think it also introduced the capabilities of what augmented reality can do Absolutely. to a larger stage. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously AR existed before Pokemon Go, but, uh, you know, my grandpa knows what AR is because of Pokemon mm -hmm. Go, you know, the ways in which it kind of showcased the technology that, um, that maybe people hadn't seen before. It seems pretty important too, along with community building and everything else. And you guys actually built an AR project. Let's not leave that out. Yeah, we did. Yeah, you go on, if you go on UWGB's campus, you will find AR signs all over the place that talk about the history of the First Nations people uh, and the land. And uh, I encourage you, if you next time you're on campus, bring your phone and go scan those. These two organized that. So let's give them a round of applause on that. So. Um, okay, uh, and I will say, I, for my part, I think this game is an interesting choice because I think um, this you can make an argument this is the last time maybe we were truly happy as, as a people. <laughs> um, I remember going onto campus and watching just people moving in perfect formation with their phones out like this, being like, I think there's Bulbasaur over here. Let's go find Bulbasaur. Um, and so uh, that was a lot of fun. And I was like, man, if I didn't have stuff to do, I'd be right out there with them. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk about your last one. It's actually a really interesting choice uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, Depression Quest. What, what's interesting about this game? Yep, so this one I think falls into the category of maybe not the most fun game to, to play, as you can guess maybe by the title, <laughs> but I think one that's really important and worth playing. So if you haven't played it, definitely check it out. Depression Quest came out in 2013 by a creator, Zoe Quinn. She used the program Twine, which is something I teach in my classes a lot. It's a free text-based game program that anybody can download and use. It's really, really easy. So if you're interested in making a game and you like to write, this is a really great platform for you. But this is a game meant to convey the experience of having depression to people that might not have experienced it. So it's, you know, it's got text, but then there are choices for things you can do, and some of the choices are grayed out, right? So if your mental health isn't in a place where you can, you know, go out and meet friends, you won't be able to select those choices. There's also kind of a scoring mechanism at the bottom that tells you whether you're on medication and how your mood is and things like that. When this game came out, it came out to a lot of controversy, which is one of the other reason why I picked it. So when it was released, it got a lot of favorable reviews. A lot of people were like, wow, this game is doing something really new. It's unusual for a game to talk about mental health. Like, that's really cool. And then a lot of gamers who felt like this wasn't, you know, it's a text-based game. There's no action. There's no fighting. You know, it's, it's mostly just reading stuff. <laughs> they were like, man, this is not a game that should be getting all these awards. Clearly, the creator must have, you know, traded sexual favors with journalists in order to get these reviews. And that, of course, hadn't happened, but it spawned um, the Gamergate controversy, which I'm sure many of you have heard about, where a lot of Women in the game industry were doxxed, were issued death threats, there were games made about them, you know, getting beat up and things like that. 
Um, and this had been an issue in the game industry for a while, but this was the first time where it kind of became an issue that the public was aware of. And I don't think that the game industry has fully reckoned with some of the things that have come out of this. I think this is something that people are still working on actively in the companies, in player communities, you know, as creators and things like that. But this is a really important game, I think, as a touchstone moment in terms of representation and inclusivity and, um, you know, how we, how we avoid toxicity in, in all the different forms that it affects gaming. Okay. Any other thoughts? I think that sums it up pretty well, personally. Yeah. I mean, I think it also puts Twine on the map. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, the, uh, it, playing this game made me realize I can make a Twine game. And yeah. I did. Right? And I think I know that experience is not unique to folks. So mm -hmm. empowering folks maybe don't have access to technological tools um, to make like a big AAA game, but still make something that speaks to your interests is, you know, that's probably what this did too, I think. Yeah. And uh, certainly uh, about subject matter that we hadn't really seen talked about in games. And so just again, showing the, the, the malleability of the medium to do different kinds of things, I think is really important. So uh, Dr. Case, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Williams, let's start with yours. Well, what's the first one? Uh, we'll, we'll find out together. Okay. Baldur's Gate. Baldur's right. Gate. Cool. Um, in the news right now quite a bit. Well, at least yeah, the third one is. Right. So Baldur's Gate came out in 1998. Um, it was made by Bioware. Some of us might be familiar with Bioware uh, from the Mass Effect Dragon's Age uh, series. I think this was their second game. Um, but the reason I put this on this list, and then I said like this also fundamentally changed how I think about storytelling. But the, the third one, <laughs> Baldur's Gate 3, came out, uh, this was in uh, Alpha for a long time, but came out uh, this summer. Um, and obviously, it's probably things people are familiar, very familiar with, right? Uh, but all kind of started here. And the reason I put this on my game changers, this one from like uh, from a personal perspective, is because the way in which the people who worked on this game, the the way in which this game kind of trickled down to a bunch of other games is significant. So Baldur's Gate uh, had a, a several different expansions for it: Baldur's Gate Two, Shadows of Um, um made b primarily by Bioware, but then it was shipped over to Black Isle uh, Studios, um, and then. Um, Black Elf Studios made uh, a couple games like uh, like uh, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale. Um, and I say games like that, like the isometric sort of computer role-playing games based in Dungeons & Dragons kind of starts here. Um, and we'll see this carry throughout the rest of, um, you know, the 20 years, uh, up and into including um, the most recent edition of that, uh, Larian Studios, right, who did uh, Baldur's Gate 3, the one maybe we're playing right now. Um, so it all kind of starts here, I think. Um, and I think that's the reason that I put it on this list, not just because of the ways they talk about story and the, 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 the ways in which uh, choices matter to this game, um, but the fact that we can see Ripple's effect throughout the entire industry. Like, uh, the people who worked on Baldur's Gate uh, went on to work on Black Isle Studios. The Black Isle Studios uh, became Obsidian Entertainment, who, uh, who made uh, Pillars of Eternity. Um, the ways in which like, this game sort of has ripple effects throughout the industry, I think is hard to overstate. Yeah. And also Fallout was uh, right. tied to that in a different way. They, I don't think they made the original ones, but they New would Vegas. come back and make New Vegas, yeah. yeah. Made by a guy named Josh Sawyer, who's yeah. from Wisconsin. There you go. So, yeah, perfect, perfect local connection there. Uh, any thoughts? So we were talking about Baldur's Gate 3 before this panel, us, um, Chris and I, and the CGM interns. And it's one of the things I think we were sort of talking about is how, again, <laughs> as a storyteller, how many different stories there are and how many different ways there are through the game. And that, I mean, I'm nowhere near being done with Baldur's Gate 3, but I love, I just love that, that there, it feels like there are so many different ways to experience that <laughs> world. I was talking about her game state. I'm like, what did you do? I know. Because <laughs> that's not, like, that, not what's happened to me at all. 
without getting into any spoilers, like you can make some bonkers choices, which I think you've made. So, um, but that feels like appropriate to D&D, &D, right? right? These games are very highly tied to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons is a very collaborative storytelling system and you can do crazy bonkers stuff. Yeah. And the cool thing, I mean, I'm not as familiar with the original Baldur's Gate, but certainly in the new one, it just lets you do that. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's a terrible choice, but if you want to make it, and I'm not going to stop you. I would say right? that's like Larian stamp on it, yeah. too. Like this, so it's, what I'm saying, like, uh, you know, Baldur's, Larian obviously owes a debt to the Baldur's Gate games, but they're also doing their own thing with it. And I mm -hmm. think really embracing the sort of the bonkersness of a D&D session is part of that, especially yeah. if you play multiplayer. If you play multiplayer, Baldur's Gate, all bets are off. Um, weird stuff happens. I think we got to do that sometime. Once I yeah. once we all finish the story, sometime in like twenty twenty eight, like let's come back to a multiplayer session because uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. All right, let's yeah. talk about the next one, and that's gonna be Dwarf Fortress. Yeah. You're on your own on this one, man. Ooh, <laughs> You're on your own on this one. I got nothing on this one. <laughs> well, um, I put this on for a very particular reason: is that maybe nobody's heard of this game. It's possible you haven't. Um, Has anybody heard of Dwarf Fortress in here? Okay, we so got some hands going up. All right, nice. Stands up here. Uh, I'm going to ask you when you started playing. So this game was in development for 20 years. Uh, made by a couple of brothers, the Adam brothers. Um, in, uh, I think the original they started working on in 2002. The alpha release was 2006. Uh, but it got a fancy release in 2020 with like, like actual UI. Uh, because before it was just like a graphic, like text graphic game. But the reason I put this on here is you might be familiar with a game called Minecraft. Uh, Dwarf Fortress predates Minecraft. Minecraft is one of their inspirations, not the only one. I'm not saying you ripped off Dwarf Fortress. It's part of this game. Mm -hmm. So what I brought this up is the ways in which like, the small game made by a couple of brothers uh, exist existing entirely on donations for years and years and years and years inspired one of the biggest games of all time. Mm -hmm. you know? um, additionally, you can talk about from a gameplay perspective, uh, this game is bonkers. <laughs> uh, the motto of this game is losing is fun. <laughs> uh, because there's no uh, win state, there's no end condition, and pretty much what happens is eventually the systems get built upon systems. Um, it's a colony management game, I should say, too. You, you design to kind of make a fortress for your dwarves to survive, uh, but eventually your world is going to break, and it's going to break in hilarious and unexpected ways. So the ways in which this game talks about emerging gameplay, how the game state kind of changes from uh, based on systems that are completely out of your control, and how you adapt to that, I think is fascinating. Um, and one of the brothers is on a record saying, this is his life's work. He's mm -hmm. gonna, it's like Walt Whitman updating Leaves of Grass. He's going to do the same thing with Dwight Fortress over and over and over again. I so, love it. That's a good metaphor. I like that comparison. Yeah. Um, Julie, have any thoughts on Dwarf Fortress? I haven't played it, but I've been looking at it for a while, so I'm excited to try it. Yeah, it's uh, cheap. Um, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Looks like it'll run on pretty much anything, too, <laughs> yeah. which is nice. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the next one, which is... Gone Home. Now, oh boy, I love this one. Yeah. Why, why is Gone Home on here? Uh, I struggle to put uh, 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 this on here. Um, Gone Home is, it's, I think it's hard to describe almost. It's a, I would say it's an exploration game or anything else. I don't want to get too much into the story because I think you get the story away pretty yeah. clearly. The sto this is a story-driven game. You don't right. want to know, you want to know as little about the story going in as possible because that is 95% of the experience. Right, and I think the way that this is a game changer for me, one, it's a, a high-profile game by, by, by a, a queer creator, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty significant and addresses queer themes. Not that it didn't have before Gone Home, but Gone Home makes that very overt. Um, in addition to the way in which it uses environmental storytelling. So you kind of walk through this house and you figure out what happened based on sort of the environment of the house itself. Mm -hmm. And I felt, um, you know, we see that a lot. People talk about it a lot now with like big AAA games, environmental storytelling. Um, but we see this kind of very adroitly done, very uh, succinctly done, I think, in a, in a game that is relatively small. Yeah, right? you can finish this like a, an 
couple hours. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So I, and, 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 and it's intentionally small. Mm-hmm. It doesn't try to be this big sprawling thing. It's telling a very intimate story about personal relationships um, and fractured relationships uh, through environmental storytelling, I mm-hmm. think. I know, Julie, you've got a lot to say about this too, I think. Yeah, I think you covered it really well, but I love this game. I think it's mm-hmm. fascinating. As you mentioned, the environmental storytelling, I feel like in this game is maybe one of the strongest games that I've ever played. The way that the the location kind of, in, in, the, the emotional experience of exploring the location highlights and undercut, or sort of emphasizes the emotion of the story, which is really cool. And also, I will just say that it has music from Riot Girl bands yeah. of the 1990s, and that alone, I think, makes it worth it. Six jams, six licensed jams. Yeah, there's yeah. some good stuff in there. Yeah. Um, uh, 2013, so relatively 10 years old by now, yeah. but still pretty current. You can find it pretty cheap on Steam when they go on sale. Um, yeah. worth, your, worth your time. If you got a couple hours and you got pretty much any computer, you can run this and check it out. And and, I, uh, I appreciate that too. Like people yeah. want like big games. Sometimes I just want a game I can finish. I think it's on Switch yeah. as well. Like you can you can check this out, and I recommend you do. Um, I will say there's a point where um, so you are at a very purposeful walking speed throughout this game. Um, you are meant to kind of go through the house at a certain point, and when you get toward the climax of the game, the end of the game, every fiber of my being was like, where is the sprint button? I have to, like, without giving anything away, like, I need to get to the place I have to go as fast as I can. I'm very worried. Um, so it's, it's, I was, I was just completely caught up. When I, uh, I had a former podcast I did with a, a guest who's been on the show before, a friend of mine uh, named Steve Watts, he works for GameSpot, and we were arguing back and forth. It was the year 2013, so uh, Mario 3D World and uh, I think Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds came out. We could not agree on which was the number one game in our podcast. So what we, what did we agree on? Gone Home. We both love Gone Home so much. Like, I guess that's number one. It wasn't our first choice, but we loved it so much. That was the best game of 2013. So, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's my Gone Home story, but good stuff. Uh, Kentucky Route Zero. Yeah, another game that maybe is not as uh, popular as it should be. Um, so, uh, Kentucky Route Zero um, was released in episodes, episodic game. I think it was, it was wrapped up in 2020. I want to say it was maybe 2016 to 2020, something kind of like that. Um, uh, the vision of pretty much one guy named Jake. Um, but other people working on it. But I think the reason I put this on here is uh, I don't think I played like a more surreal game than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, a strange game that definitely leans into the magical realistic um, uh, things you might see in like a novel like by Marquez. Uh, very much like a literary game in that respect. Uh, but I think also what we I put it on here is uh, the episodic nature of it. The mm-hmm. way in which it growed and changed over like how they released it I think was pretty important. And we see people kind of doing this now too. Um, but Kentucky Route Zero is I think uh, for all those reasons, one of them put on here. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't have much to add on this one, but uh, it is certainly one that uh, people, again, like game of the year type contender, a lot of praise for its nar- narrative and its story. Yeah, I think because it was just something that I feel like, I mean, once something comes along, this is completely different than what we expected. Mm-hmm. And Jake Elliott kind of did that, I think, with the Contegrate Zero. It's really fascinating. I feel like you could do a lot more work with thinking about the episodic nature and how that plays into storytelling and how like that maybe allows you to respond to players and yeah, that's a lot there. Yeah, and I think, you know, we see that often like longer dev cycles, like Hollow Gate 3 is a good example of that, just having feedback. But I think the ways in which you can, what, what a, we see this in television, right? Yeah. But episodic nature of anything that you do here, uh, Kentucky Route Zero, I think is doing some of that. Cool. All right, and I think this next one's the last one? Yeah. Uh, Hades. Oh, yeah. I love Hades. So, Let's talk about Hades. Yeah. Right. Here's one that people might be familiar with. Uh, I put Hades on here because I love it. Um, there's not a single wrong note. Hades, the music is awesome. Character design is awesome. Um, even the, the writing is incredible, but not just like the, the actual writing itself. There's a thing that game writers do called barks, 
where you just kind of walk past somebody and they say something, like Arrow to the Knee is a famous example of that in Skyrim, right? Uh, Hades bugs are still awesome, right? They work well for the characters, they work well for the way you're out in your game state, all of that. But I also put it on here too because it's a roguelike, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I put Hades on here because I want to talk about Rogue to some degree, right? Uh, if you're not familiar with Rogue, a Rogue's game, I think it's 1987, I want to say. So a couple years after Super Mario, um, and when we call something a roguelike, we're talking about uh, the procedure-generated worlds, right? But also uh, sort of one playthrough in permadeath. Um, and there's a ton of examples of this. Hades is probably the most popular recent one, I would say. Um, say the Aspire is a deck-building roguelike, so I'm just maybe familiar with that. Um, but I think Hades is a really good expression of that style, but also updates it and just, like, it is not, I can't say a bad thing about it. Yeah, right. It's hard. Um, they, they just they crushed it. Super Giant Games did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one, which I know a lot of us are excited for, it comes out uh, next year. Yes, that's exciting. Um, Julie, do you have thoughts on this? Oh, I just echo. I think it's a great game. It's super fun. This game is really hard for me. I feel like, it, but I didn't mind at all. All the death. Yeah, and just the personality of it and the way that the different Greek gods all have very defined personalities. And if you're a, mytho- a mythology uh, enthusiast, you will find a lot of references and jokes that are very, very funny. Um, and like how everybody just hates Hades. You're, you see, your, your, your main character is Zagreus. He's the son of Hades, the lord of the underworld. And all the other gods are trying to like get him to come up to Mount Olympus. Like, oh, come live with us. Your dad's terrible. Don't you know? And, and so like he's rebelling against his dad and all his aunts and uncles are basically cheering him on for their own reasons, as of course the, the gods are wont to do. Um, but uh, the fun thing is, so every time you die, you float back down the river Styx and start over again as you try to escape the underworld. And I just love the idea of how the narrative justification for that common mechanic of you die, you start over, but you carry some stuff back with you to strengthen you so you get a little further each time, feels really appropriate for the story they're telling. And uh, by the time, like, and when, when that game actually ends, when you get to the ending and you, you, you know, not, I guess not a spoiler, say that you fight Hades and you presumably win, where it goes from there is really, really interesting and compelling, and just what a great game. Yeah, any game you can beat up your dad is okay with my book. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Was that the, the millennial dream is either having yeah. a dad that apologizes? Well, I, think or... I, I think my review on Steam is like, I don't have to call home to disappoint my dad anymore. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the way in which kind of, that, that's a part of it, I think, is really compelling. And, you know, the death is not the end. Yeah. You know, I think there's something to be said for that, too. And the, the it's, yeah, this, this, this is not a wrong note. The music's incredible. Yeah, um, the art's so good. Yeah. Every, everything about it's great. Katie's, oh, what a great game. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams. I'm going to go through mine kind of quickly yeah. here, and uh, I, I, I felt bad because mine feel like a lot more basic. No. Well, wait, I knew you got to represent Nintendo, so it wasn't working. Well, I'm, I'm representing consoles. Like This is yeah. this little snapshot of kind of you can see where I'm at. Um, so my first one is... Super Mario 64. Why Super Mario 64? Why not Super Mario Brothers or Super Mario Brothers 3 or Super Mario World? This is the game that figured out how to do 3D movement in a navigable space right um, to the point where, honestly, I think a lot of games, it's only recently that other games have started to kind of like catch up to it. For a long time, Mario 64 was almost the end of the word on that, and that was kind of a problem for the industry. Um, where Because it's not a flawless game by any stretch. I think if you go back and play it now, it holds up well, but there are still a lot of things that we have taken for granted in terms of quality of life. But uh, to see that, you know, I was a Mario fan from way back, um, and uh, to see this guy, this little guy, run around in a full environment to explore Peach's castle and like run around Goombas and fire out of cannons, and it was just magical. I did not actually own an N64 until much, much, much later, but my cousin had one, and so I would go, we'd bring it over, and we'd play, and I was just transfixed by Mario 64. I thought, this is incredible. I ended up getting a PlayStation, but uh, part of me is always like, oh man, I wish I would've gotten Mario 64. But 
I have other games that made the PlayStation worthwhile. We'll talk about those in a second. Yeah, and it's also just fun. It's just so much fun. The music's great. The, it's just so much fun. The environments are so cool to explore. It's and I think that with the 3D thing too, they really thought, like, well, obviously the controller of the N64 had the affordance to be able to do so. Yeah, right? the, it was the, built for this game, basically. Right. And that was maybe to the detriment of other games, which, but that was Nintendo's style at the time. It was like, all right, whatever Shigeru Miyamoto is making, we're just gonna make a controller around that. So that's what we ended up getting. And sometimes that works, like here. Other times, like Mario Sunshine, maybe not so much. Um, but uh, it's certainly part of that style, that hardware first kind of toy mentality is very much in display here. I was just going to say too, I kind of feel a little bit lucky because, you know, I think about where games are now and I love that we were able to go through the time when you, the game companies were figuring out mm -hmm. graphics and things like this. It's kind of neat to just be able to have watched that kind of happen in real time. And I remember every time a game did something new or different graphically or mm -hmm. mechanically, it just felt like such a cool thing. Yeah, it's it was, so neat to be able to see it's it. It's so rare now to see yeah, that yeah, stuff. It's like it's, it's, I feel like we solved a lot of these problems and we kind of are maybe worse off for it. Um, my next one is, okay, I was going to do this one. You, if you know me, you know I was going to do Street Fighter. Um, I love Street Fighter. It is one of my all-time favorite franchises, uh, my favorite video games, my favorite fictional character of all time is probably from this game, Chun-Li. I've got her on my, my shirt here. Um, here's the thing. This is not my favorite Street Fighter game. Um, I, I, I much prefer ones like Alpha 3, um, Street Fighter 6 that just came out. Uh, it took over my life this summer. Um, I'm out of practice and I'm going to completely get uh, walloped when I go back online. Um, but this game to me is, this literally changed the industry. Um, this changed how arcades work, right? It revitalized the arcade scene in the early 90s. It was on its way out a little bit. Street Fighter brought it roaring back and people were lining up, putting their quarter on the thing to say, I got next, I'm gonna, you know, playing their favorite characters. And the characters, these big, bright, colorful, we'd never seen a game that looked like this with these huge sprites that had all these personality and the animation was so good. Um, one of my earliest memories of this game was I was at, I was at, uh, at a Little Caesars uh, and back when they were actual restaurants and uh, they had an arcade and they had Street Fighter in there and I was a kid, I was, I forget exactly what year this was, but I would go and I would start wailing on the buttons and I thought that's how you beat the game. Um, and like this guy who feel like he was an adult to me, but he's probably like 16, came out and said, you got to stop doing that or we're going to make you leave. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm just going to start tapping the buttons very slowly and deliberately. Like, uh, but, uh, but with this, I mean, this creates really the head-to-head -head fighting genre. It had existed before this, but uh, this brings a lot of uh, competitors. Uh, Mortal Kombat comes out as a result of this um, and becomes arguably even bigger in a lot of ways. Um, you have games like Tekken, Soul Calibur, uh, you know, the SNK, oh my gosh, SNK would be here all day talking about the King of Fighters and things like that. The entire industry is born out of this. And without this, we don't get Mortal Kombat, which means we don't get the uh, video game violent sessions on Capitol Hill. We don't get things like the ESRB ratings and we don't get things like the discussion like, you know, our video games actually. So Street Fighter really kind of like signals, I think in a lot of ways, a mainstreaming of video games as a concept in the popular uh, consciousness that maybe doesn't get credit for, um, you know, for good, bad and otherwise. I think you can trace it back to Street Fighter. And I think what you just said about the arcade is right on too. Like the arcade, I remember going to the arcade, uh, you know, because it just came out, I couldn't drive. So I'd walk to the arcade mm -hmm. in the summer and just like, you know, get crushed by a you know teenager. Oh yeah, no, you're gonna want yeah. just yeah. want. But I think the the, the the arcade is like a social space was something that was like kind of in decline. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, because you have you'd have uh you know arcades and bars and whatnot, but like arcade for like a kid, yeah. right? 
um, there's something to be said for like the ways in which like not just Street Fighter, but like the, all the ways that the fighting games that kind of came out of that we violated some of that mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah, they kept arcades alive probably before longer than they were supposed to. Right before yeah. any of those, those other games, like we had this, right? And also too, like the idea of taking this game and bringing it to the home consoles on Super Nintendo was like the first time we'd had a home console port that was pretty darn close to the original. That thing sold like crazy. So it was, it was definitely a big change in how we talk about this stuff. I feel like these fighting games, too, are a great example of how your body kind of stores mm -hmm. all the special moves and stuff, right? Like just like learning them. Yep. Yeah, you just don't forget that, and that's yep. really awesome. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting how they've actually taken steps to kind of adapt for that in the most recent Street Fighter. So if you don't have that sort of muscle memory built in, um, you now have things where it's like, okay, now you can do uh, combos just by hitting a button again and again, or hold down this button and then push this other one to do super moves. And they're, they're trying to make it more accessible, and I think that's really part of why this most recent one took off. Um, and frankly, as apparently, like, you know, uh, in terms of, I mean, not in sales, but in terms of quality, like people are like, you know, it's eating Mortal Kombat's lunch. So it's a nice little revenge back from the early 90s. I love both games, but I'm a Street Fighter guy through and through, and I will, that is, that is where I will stand, and that is where I will die. Um, my next one is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Love this game. I love it so much. Uh, and uh, if you haven't seen the new season of the Castlevania show that just came out on Netflix, um, if you have seen it, you are probably going to understand why I was almost screaming at the end of that one. Um, but uh, it is very much like, without saying too a lot, like, like they, they're getting there, and I'm super excited. Um, this game, so listen, we've had Metroid, we've had Super Metroid, there have been games with this idea like, okay, we big, open space, you explore, you find things with different abilities that let you go back and open more spaces. That has always been a thing. Castlevania Symphony of the Night said, okay, what if we take that and we add like an RPG system with like armor and weapons that you can build your character out and different abilities you can turn off and on and stuff, and stuff. it's like rolling into a ball or firing missiles. Now you can turn into a bat or turn into mist or, or, or do things like that or get like all these different crazy abilities and some of them are hilarious and some of them are like, um, you know, you'll do sometimes do stuff and like Alucardo's be like what like he's like this doesn't make any sense what you're trying to make me do so it's all these little fun tricks and things you can find and it's got a weird sense of humor and it's not super well localized so you have like this really famous monologue where Richter's like die monster you don't belong in this world and Dracula's like it was not by my hand that I am once again given flesh. I was, I can do the whole thing. Please. But he's like, what is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. And he throws the, the chalice across the room. Enough talk, have at you. I'm just, every time I'm like, this is what video games are about. This is the medium. And as soon as they, they, they've remade this game, and they've redone the dialogue and it's, it's terrible. It's an absolute slap in the face. The, the garbage dialogue and the voice acting that is just terrible is part of the charm of this game. But what, so what stuck out to me is that it did all the stuff that Metroid and other things had done, but it added this new level and it actually sort of renamed the genre into Metroidvania. Right. And I'm always more of a fan of the Vania part of Metroidvania. I know that's a controversial thing, but I stand by it. This game rules. Like, absolutely, you need to play this if you haven't played it. Yeah, I think the, the, the Vania part of that is, is crucial. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously Castlevania existed before this, but that this is really what put yeah. it on the map. This, right? this is, and this is, my, this is the best Castlevania game. Like, I love all the Castlevanias, but this one is the one, like, if I had to say play a Castlevania game, it's this one. Yeah. Super fun, and also with a great kind of tone and atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Love yeah, that like, part too. Not campy, but close to campy. Oh, it's, a little, it's yeah, very, yeah. Sure. Okay. And another game where you have to go fight your dad. Like, you know, you're the son of Dracula and, you know. <laughs> I think it's another podcast idea. Games where you fight your dad. <laughs> you can fight your, we're just going to do a whole series. That, yeah. That's just it. Games where you can fight your dad. Coming next <laughs> on Phoenix Studios. All right. Uh, my next one. Metal Gear Solid. What can I say about this game? Um, you want to see a movie that you can play, it's Metal Gear Solid. Um, this is Hideo Kojima, one of the few people I would say is the closest thing we have to an auteur in the game space. In film, it's very common, in games, it's less so. Um, when I first played this game on the PlayStation, like, you look at the models now, like, it's very low fidelity, boxy, nobody has faces, it's weird. 
But at the time, like having this idea of a game where it's like you're getting this like massive espionage story that's being told like with these long cutscenes that tells dive into real world history. Like my, my introduction to things like the Start Treaty and a lot of the like kind of like minutia of the Cold War came from this game. Um, and then to have like also the way that it kind of messes with the language of games, like for instance, and, and like uh, actually gets you involved with the sort of tactile and like use of the controls. For instance, there's a boss that can read your memory, can read your mind, right? And so if he, every time you do something, he just dodges out of the way. How do you beat that? He's reading the controller port. You unplug the controller, plug into the second port. Now he's toast because now he can't read your mind. Stuff like that. The way Kojima experiments with this stuff, the way he uses the rumble feature, which was very new at the time, to simulate things like heartbeat or even have like a character give you a massage. Stuff like that is really, really interesting and a good example of the kind of madness this man would get up to in later games. And look, I, th I think Metal Gear Solid Five is probably the best game in this series, but man alive, do I have fond, fond memories of this game. It changed, honestly, I think it changed the way I saw video games. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first stealth game. No, it's not even the first Metal Gear game. Right, yeah, it's honest. not the first yeah. Metal Gear. I'm mean, playing the original Metal Gear on NES. Um, but I think, to your point, like this, the stealth part is a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. It feels like this maybe was where it took on a, a different... This, um, this kicks off the stealth genre. Right, yeah. right. And the idea that you know you're you're encouraged and rewarded for finding non-violent solutions to problems right. or putting somebody to sleep instead of killing them was such an amazing change at the time. Yeah, there's different ways to solve conflict that isn't mm -hmm. just like group. Force, yeah, right? sneak around them, and then right. they do later things like in Metal Gear Solid 3, for instance, there's a part where you're fighting an elderly sniper. You could get into a fight with him and shoot at him, or you could just basically set your clock ahead a couple weeks, and he just passes away from natural causes. That's how I did it. Uh, <laughs> um, any thoughts on this, Julie? Yeah, I like what you were talking about in terms of the physical element mm -hmm. of it. I feel like it's super creative, and also just the idea of like a, a game that tells the story in such a cinematic way. It's yeah, amazing. yeah, and just like it, the whole series is worth playing, but the first one, uh, I'm waiting for them to remake this in a really kind of complete way. Um, they did the Twin Snakes, but that game's like way too expensive now. Um, so if, if you're listening, Konami, please remake this game so folks can check it out for the first time and do some weird stuff. I mean, Konami's barely a video game company anymore, but. Right. Um, and then the last one, I just like Mega Man 2 so much. It's my favorite game of all time. I could give you some like explanation about like, oh, you know, uh, this was a labor of love. It was like literally people from Capcom moonlighted on this game because they just wanted to make a sequel and Capcom had no interest in it. They want to go back and fix a lot of the problems from the first Mega Man. And they came together with like this thing that's just like this perfect marriage of form and and uh, and, and action and, and challenge and uh, without being too difficult. And it just came together so beautifully and the music's incredible. But honestly, like, all of that is true. Man, this game, if, if people ask me, like, what's your favorite game, it's always going to be Mega Man 2, now and forever. Like, is it is... nostalgia factor for you, too, I you mean, think? Part of it, I mean, I'm a Mega Man fan, like, I'm a diehard, like, just in general, uh, and a part of that is, like, I, I was at the right age for Mega Man. Um, but I think just going back, like, to me, there's just so much, like, if you're, like, in terms of the platforming, the gunplay, all that kind of stuff, just feels like it didn't get much better than this. Like, later Mega Man games would, like, improve on some things, but to me, this is, like, the first one. It's like, oh, this is what this series is capable of. This is what the, this hardware can do in a lot of cases. Like it had bosses that could take up almost the entire screen. That was almost unheard of. Um, it was just really clever and interesting. And, and you know, you're always getting shown something new and different, which I thought was cool. I have such fond memories of this one too. And I feel like, yeah, you're right. It was just fun to figure mm -hmm. out like what the items did and how to beat the bosses. I, yeah, I was, spent a lot of time playing this one. Yeah, and how expressive. I mean, look at the, like you got this giant fish and Mega Man blinks and he kind of like, there's all kinds of little touches that really give it so much life and personality. And that was just not common at that time in games. Yeah, Mega Man 2 is awesome. I just wanted to put it on there. Uh, any other thoughts before we move on? 
let's hear from what you all like. Yeah. So I'm actually gonna. So here's how we're gonna do this. I'm gonna take this. I'm gonna walk across. So I actually like not moving gonna moderator be able to, style. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna get up here and move over. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to hear anything that's going on, so this will be fun. I love that. Um, I can't. I can't hear anything. So as long as the levels are bouncing, it looks like it's still recording. Is the timer still going? Uh, yeah. Let me just check. Yeah, we're good, I think. Okay, cool. All right. So uh, I want to uh, do this. Um, oh, shoot. Did I lose this? No, I didn't. Okay, so we're going to actually uh, build this list together using the uh, Topsters platform. So I want you, uh, we're going to go ahead and just, if you want to raise your hand and come forward uh, and suggest a game you think should be on here and why, feel free to do so. Uh, come on up. I'll get you a microphone. And we got a microphone right here. So. Um, okay, you gotta tell us your name and tell us what game you think should be on this list. Okay. Uh, my, na my name's Rowan Patron. Um, it's kind of tough to choose which game to put on it because I have so many favorites. For me, hmm, I love Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door, okay. but I think I have to do Street Fighter III Third Strike because it's the game that got me into fighting games as a genre and I, f I can finally like appreciate them. And so it was just kind of like a turning point for me to even now where I'm loving Street Fighter VI and that's one of my favorite games of all time now. So I would have to say Street Fighter III Third Strike. I'm not gonna argue with you. <laughs> I, mean, I love two. I love Street Fighter Two, yeah. so I'm fine with that choice. But like for me, it's Third Strike all the way. So yeah, and, I'll, um, and the other thing that's interesting about that game is how it's sort of like a and, and thank you very much. Uh, um, how it's just sort of like a, a a swan song for the 2D fighter. Like it was big and gorgeous, and they put so much effort into it. It's like one of the last 2D fighters Capcom made, and it's a lost art. I, I will go back and look at that game in emotion. I will just sometimes get a little emotional just watching it because it's so beautiful. Um, any thoughts on Third Strike? Or if you, if you only want to have one Street Fighter game, <laughs> okay. I mean, I will do whatever, but I mean, you can make a list. We put all Street Fighter all the time. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, all street, yeah. I can do that. Um, it's cool. Thank you very much. Okay, so we'll go ahead. If there are no anybody want to object, uh, okay. Uh, so we all cool with it. Want to add it to the list? Sure. All right, we'll do that. Um, and uh, let me just go do that real quick here. And so I will type in. As Brian said, I would say like it's really tough for me to have five. I had like a bunch of like this should be on there, this should be on there, this should be on there. And you know, but making lists is fun because it can always be as expansive as you want it to be. Right? Yeah. Okay. So who else wants to come up and share theirs? Um, okay. Uh, actually, you're you're already up here. Come on down, Master Chief. I have a feeling. <laughs> I'm gonna guess. Uh, this, this, for those of you listening at home, we have this this uh, this listener is in full Master Chief Mjolnir armor. So tell us your name and what game you think should be on the list. My name is John, and what I think should be on the list is not what you think. Okay. It's a old game that unfortunately is not really, it's hard to find a way to get it downloaded because of how old it is. Um, how many of you are familiar with MechWarrior? Ooh, MechWarrior. MechWarrior, yeah. MechWarrior 4. That was the first video game I ever played. Okay. What was cool about MechWarrior 4 to you? Well, change the game. you get to drive a robot and blow stuff up. I mean, I never played the story. I just, I was young, so I just got on my dad's lap. He had the joystick, and just, we pick a mech, we go to, like, a mission, and we just play around with that. And there's also that tie to your, to, to, it's a memory you shared with your dad, which is also kind of thing that, you know, helps us, I think, helps certain games stand out in our mind, too. So that's mm -hmm. very cool. Yeah, um, like I said, I mean, like, the game is not... Play, they have a new game out, MechWare Online, but that one's more high graphic demanding because this was an older game, like it came out in 2000. And 
the company that made it, FASA, because Beckware is from the Battletech universe, is that mm -hmm. they were struggling around then, so I think that's why they didn't choose to keep it going, is because it might bring back memories, which is dumb, though, because that was one of the more likable games cool. around when they, before they stopped. Specifically, it's expansion standalone mercenaries. All right, well, does anybody object to putting it on the list? We go with MechWarrior 4? I'm with MechWarrior 4. Any thoughts on MechWarrior 4? It's fun. All right, cool. Yeah, sometimes you want to get a giant robot and blow stuff up. Not that complicated, <laughs> especially if you got fond memories of it. So, yeah, um, I think I can't really see. Is that Mech Warrior? Uh, it's just you four. Okay, uh, if somebody else wants to come up, as we we only have a couple more minutes, so I just want to make sure. Uh, come, on. come on up here. Yeah. Maybe form a line or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah come on, a line. How about that? On. Yeah, yes. yeah. Come up in line. We'll get through everybody, but we do have to kind of make this a little yeah. quick. Lightning strike. So I'll hold yeah, I got the mic. Okay, you got the mic. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Journey. Um, I don't know who all played Journey, but it was a really fun game that I played in like 2013, and I don't remember who made it, but um, you're kind of this little creature making your way up a mountain. There's absolutely no dialogue, and halfway through the game, you get paired with some random person all over the world, and you get to do some collaborative stuff with them, and you never find out who they are, because there's absolutely no dialogue, and there's no way to talk to them, except for a little bing, 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 which was really fun, and it showed me kind of um, how to make games in ways that I didn't expect, so. It was really fun. All right, very cool. Thank you. And this actually was the one you replaced, Julie, so it got on yeah, there anyway. Yeah, so I'm glad you... Thanks, Cass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, who wants to go next? Come on up. Jacob. Yeah, would you mind? Um, yeah, so Miriam's going to come up and hold the mic again. Thank you, Miriam. Uh, please tell us your name and uh, who, uh, what game you want to do. Um, I'm Jacob Flood. I'm one of the interns for CGIM. Uh, I want to add a game that I think is kind of um, lost to a lot of people's memories, System Shock 1. Okay. Um, it's a very formative game for many different genres. Metroidvania is one of them. Uh, it came up between, the, between Metroid and um, Castlevania, but it uses a lot of the same gameplay uh, structures, like you know having to go back and um, use your abilities on previous levels in order to unlock that stuff, or in order to unlock new portions of the game. Um, it's a touchstone in the immersive sim genre, and it's also something that led to the creation of Bioshock. Yes. Um, one of the most well-known, like, you know, game stories of one of the previous de generations. Cool. All right. I think that's a good case. Any thoughts on that, doctors? Um, you agree? Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. We'll leave it on the list. All right. Come on up. Hey, I'm uh, Scott. Uh, I want to put Bloodborne up there. Um, <laughs> what, what game, sorry? Uh, it's called Bloodborne. Oh, Bloodborne, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, no, normally, I don't really do horror, but yeah, no, just the vibes, the music, the bosses, enemies, environments, the combat, wonderful uh, gothic horror vibes. Um, that game really got into my head, and it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, Bloodborne, it's on there. So thank you very much. We'll, we have a few more. We do have to kind of wrap things up, so let's just get these uh, remaining ones up, and we'll uh, put them on the list. Hi, I'm Jacob, and I want to suggest A Hat in Time, my favorite... Uh, a Hat in Time? A Hat in Time. It's my favorite um, reimagination of the 3D platformer genre. It was created by Gears for Breakfast, a small indie company from all over the world, and it's absolutely adorable and great to play. Cool, and, we, and uh, we did just talk about Mario 64, and this is, of course, one of the many games that was inspired by that and uh, very beloved, so thank you. 
Uh, my name is Katie, and I want to suggest uh, Borderlands 2. Um, I feel like I could say a million reasons generally why, in terms of like a kind of a timeless, cel-shaded style, um, really memorable uh, characters, villains, specifically in Handsome Jack. But for me, it was a game my friends and I really got into after we graduated college and moved across the country. And it was something that brought us together to play in co-op together. Fantastic. Um, and I have hundreds of hours into it. So. And again, like having those memories you build with the people you care about can mean a lot. So thank you. Hi, I'm Ethan. Uh, the game I'd recommend would be uh, Tunic. Uh, it came out fairly recently, last couple, four-ish years. And you play a fox in a um, Link from Legend of Zelda tunic, and you are told literally nothing. Every sign you read, every person you interact with, you cannot interact with it. You can't understand anything. The UI is in a different coded language. And you're literally trying to find the pieces to the instruction manual to the game itself. It's the only game I can really remember where I had to get a notebook and write down directions of what to do and remember, like, okay, up, down, left, right, what does this do? And really playing around with, like, the meta-ness of the game and, like, interacting with, like, itself in a very interesting way. Cool. Thank you. And one more. So uh, we actually, I'm wondering what yours is going to be, given the cosplay. So let's see it. May I recommend a game called Off? It's kind of like... Undertale in a way, but came out 2011. Really good story, really good gaming, puzzles, story dialogue, but mostly the music. I recommend listening to Pepper Steak. You will get why that game is really good. Okay. And also, a batter has daddy issues, or a baby. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I'm sorry, what was the name of the game one more time? An RPG game called Off. Orth? RPG game called Off. Off. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. All right, uh, so thank you all very much for contributing to our list of game changers. We are just about out of time, so I want to once again thank Drs. Julie Case and Chris Williams for coming by and to, uh, helping to build this list. So a round of applause for them. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. And uh, thank you thank you once again to the hardworking staff of the Brown County Library and the friends of the Brown County Library that make this event possible. Thanks especially to Gillian Dawson, Andrea West, and Kurt Bayer Baylor, the facilities manager, helped put this all together. Um, libraries are so critical, so important to the fabric of our communities. They help inform us. They keep us safe. They do everything. They offer so many resources to us. We need to really value and cherish them. So please, before you leave today, thank the librarians for all the work they do. Uh, please check out past episodes of Serious Fun and all the other Phoenix Studios shows at uwgb.edu slash podcast as well as anywhere else you can find them. That's it for Serious Fun. That's it for Game Changers. And that's it for us here at the Brown County Library. So thank you once again to Chris Williams and Julie Case. Enjoy the rest of PopCon, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks, folks. listen to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.